Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading for today comes from Matthew 6, 28 to 34. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you uh, want, you can pay attention. No. Uh, if not, you don't have to. Uh, today, we're finishing up a series we're calling Uncommon Generosity, which is all about uh, the fact that the early followers of Jesus, those who first followed him, were uncommonly generous, and that Jesus is still in the business of inviting people into a radically generous way of life that looks uncommon in the eyes of our culture today. It's uh, a series that uh, we've been planning for some time, and, and I know that at times when we uh, delve into a subject like this, people can uh, have questions. And so, I want to encourage you that the place where we, where we wrestle with this material, where we ask questions about this material, where you can in public disagree with me, is in a home group. Is in a home group. That was a joke, right? Uh, if you disagree with something I say, uh, you can wrestle with this material. So, every week after the message, we have home groups that meet throughout the city and they, they gather together to talk about this material, to, to fellowship together, to build relationships, but also to, uh, to actually delve a little deeper into what we're talking about on Sunday. So I just want to encourage you, if you're not a part of one of our home groups, if you're not in the process of having those conversations throughout the week, that you should do that. It's a really, really uh, healthy and I think uh, fun way of engaging with what we're saying here on a Sunday morning, all right? I have this, I have this fundamental belief. And the fundamental belief is that people here, people retain about 1.5% of what I say on a Sunday morning, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, but, if, but in order for us to really engage the material well and, in, and to engage the scriptures well, having a, having a conversation with friends is probably the best way to do it, right? All right, so, uh, so I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, we have small group leaders who are in the, in the building today, home group leaders that are in the building today, and we still do have an opportunity for you to sign up. If you're interested in following along with what the home groups are studying, we also have our home group guides sitting out on the coffee bar this morning. So if you uh, want to follow along with one of those, feel free to grab one of those on your way in, and you can do that. If you didn't grab one in, on your way in this morning, you can send one person from your row to go get it. Not all of you. Not all of you go, but you can send one person, and they can go and then come back. All right? All right, home group plug done. So if you weren't able to be here with us for the, the previous two weeks, I would really want, really want to encourage you to go back and listen to the last two messages because I think the way that our church uh, approaches some of these issues around generosity and giving might be um, not unique, but might be 
uh, just a quarter turn different than maybe you've heard before, and it would be really great for you uh, to be on board with us if you weren't with us the last two weeks. You can go back either on our website or if you subscribe to the podcast, you can listen there as well. Um, but I just want to want to encourage you, if you haven't heard these two messages, to, the previous two messages, to go back and do that. But this week, what I want to do is dive right in and draw your attention to something that Jesus says in our teaching text for today. It's found in verse 32. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them. Uh, Matthew 6, uh, verses 31 and 32. And this is how the NIV translation says it. If you don't have a Bible and you want to, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a paper Bible on the, right on, on the chair in front of you. You can grab out or you can look it up on your phone. So that's half as good, but it works. All right. This is what Jesus says in verse 31 and 32. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus is talking about worry here, isn't he? And he says, don't worry about your clothes or about what you will eat or drink. But then he throws in this phrase that to us sounds strange. It sounds offensive, actually. For the pagans run after these things. And most of us read this and we go, what? Okay. What, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? In our day, pagan is a pretty offensive term, right? If I had gotten up here in a little bit of a tiff and said, you're all a bunch of pagans, that would be fairly offensive, right? Hopefully, most of you would go, I don't need this, and you, could, you would walk out. Pagan seems like a very mean thing to call people, isn't it? But this is not necessarily what Jesus is doing here, as you uh, might suspect, now, in the translation, uh, in, different, in another translation of uh, this same passage, you might have a different translation with you, this word here, pagans, is translated Gentiles. Not pagans, but Gentiles. But the actual word translated in, uh, in Greek, the, the Greek word that is being rendered here, Gentiles or pagans, is ethnos. Ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnic or ethnic group from, all right? Jesus is not trying to be negative, actually, when he, call, when he says this word pagan. He's trying to dis, uh, draw a distinction between his audience, who were Jewish people, and other peoples. Another way of translating this might say, and the, and the peoples run after these things. And what he is saying here, the distinction he is trying to make, is that, uh, is that God's people, people who serve and love God, should not live in fear of not getting their basic needs met of not getting their basic needs met. Because the God who Jesus calls Father in this passage has our best interests or God's people's best interests in mind. But those who don't know this, those who don't know God this way, will naturally, in quotes, run after these things. They will naturally pursue material things as if they were ultimate, as if they were an end in themselves. This is the way the New Testament scholar Craig Keener uh, sums up this passage. He says this, The faith Jesus taught was not an intricate ritual to get what one desired, as in later magical texts. His teaching of faith meant obeying God's will with the assurance that God would ultimately fulfill the best interests of his children. In the gospel tradition, that kind of faith grows only in the context of an intimate relationship of love between the Heavenly Father and His children, the kind of relationship Jesus has with His Father and modeled for His disciples in His relationship with them. 
So Jesus is saying that those who understand God uh, like he understands him as a father will, will not nervously strive after such things because they have grounded their hopes, their desires, their worries, and their wants in the love of God. Because, and Jesus models this type of relationship, doesn't he, for us as he interacts with the Father in the Gospels. Jesus models what this looks like. But when we really see this truth, it begins to bring a pretty stark reality to our minds. When we really, when we really see what Jesus is saying to us, it, it, it creates some, uh, some tension, I think. Because if Jesus is right about this, and I think he is, it means that when we get to the bottom of our striving and our running and our worrying, what it really amounts to, what it really amounts to is a lack of trust, a lack of trust. That deep down in our hearts, there is an inability, an inability or possibly an unwillingness to see God as trustworthy, to trust Him. Like He's able to meet all of our needs as a loving Father, to trust Him as a loving Father who has our best interests in mind. And I honestly believe that this is one of, if not the prevailing sin in the heart of most Americans, this lack of trust. Because we love to run after things in this country, don't we? We love to pursue them. We love to strive. We love to make money. We love to, to achieve status and notoriety. This is what motivates us. We love to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right, and pursue things. This is what we love to do. This is a part of the foundational narrative of this country. And it has become a formational or formative piece of our collective identity. And it causes no small amount of worry in us, does it? Doesn't it? I ask, uh, if you were to ask my wife or somebody close to me, what is something that Nick worries about? What are, what are those nagging worries that kind of come up that he, that he gives voice to? They would probably tell you, Nick worries a lot about not being a hard enough worker. I worry about this, about not being a hard enough worker because I have internalized something of this narrative, right? Because, and I think this is true for a lot of us, we've internalized this narrative that we need to strive for something, that we need to put, put forth sheer effort, that we have to work as though it all depends on us in order to achieve what we quote-unquote want to achieve, to pursue these things. My grandfather was a drywaller before he retired. He was actually a taper. He didn't hang drywall. He taped drywall. And he, was, and he is one of the most loving and Christ-like people I know. And we, I don't even remember what we were doing, but we were having a conversation one day about his working life. And I, and I asked him, uh, and I just asked him this question about why he worked or what, what motivated him in his work. And he told me, or, or, or what he would have even done different if he had to do it all over again. And this is what he told me. He said this to me, and I didn't expect it. He said, I don't think I would have worked so hard if I had to do it all over again. I don't think I would have worked so hard. And I must have looked at him funny because I didn't understand what he was saying. Uh, he always was a pretty hardworking guy. He, he always stood out in my mind as someone with a tremendous work ethic, and that was something that, 
to be admired, and it is to a certain extent. But he said that in his work, in his adoption of this, of this kind of American work ethic, he had depended on his own work too much and not enough on the Father's love. He used to get to the paint store every morning by 7 or 7.30 and get his mud and all of his supplies every, every morning, regardless, rain, shine, sleet, whatever. He would get there every morning. And he said that his dependence on his own ability to work, on his own ability to, by sheer force of will, make things happen, right? That dependence on that ability that he had robbed him of something, actually. It robbed him of, his, of an opportunity to depend on God. In short, he worked believing that it all depended on him, his effort, his striving, his work. And as he got older and a little closer to Jesus, he learned that it did not, in fact, all depend on him, right? This is a common belief that we have, that the whole world revolves around us, and everything that happens or everything we earn or everything we achieve is a byproduct of my work and my effort and my ability to get it done, right? This is what we think. And if we're going to be a people who don't run after such things, as Jesus says, and instead abide in the love of God, then we are going to need to jettison some of these ideas about earning, striving, and running after. This idea that the only way we're going to make it, that the only way we're going to live worthwhile lives is by striving under our own steam for those things which we believe we need, right? And the, the problem with this becomes even more acute when we step back and understand what our culture is communicating to us about our needs. Because not only do we think we need to work in order to attain, but we also have a faulty view of what it is we actually need to be attaining, right? We're simply, uh, and this desire, these desires are, are poured into our brains, into our imagination in a million little ways in our culture. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us what we need, what we should want, that we need these things to be happy, to be fulfilled. And if we are striving after these things, if we're believing that we will never be happy unless we acquire and achieve them, then we will never be a generous people, right? This is a roadblock to generosity. If we're constantly striving after these things, if we're, if we're operating under our under our own steam, under our, under our own work, under our own ability to get things done. And if we're believing narratives about what we need that happen to not be true, it will not free us up to be a generous people. We're always going to be striving. We're always going to be running. We're always going to be working because we're never, ever, ever going to have enough. We're never going to have enough. And this is what branding and marketing are all about in a consumer economy, right? And these, these ideas have captured our brain. We are told in all kinds of, uh, of different ways, from all kinds of different sources, that we need to run after material things and possessions in order to be happy. We are told this. We believe it, but we are told it. Have you ever walked down the aisle and, and saw the dish soap? And there were like two types of dish soap, and there's one that was like $3.50, and there was one that was $1.25. And your heart just said, 
gosh, the $3.50 one is just going to be way better for my dishes, right, than the $1.25 one. There could be substantively no difference between these two dish soaps, but one of them makes a promise to you, right, that it's going to be a miracle for your dishes, and the other one is just going to clean them, right? Because these are the narratives that we imbibe. You know, there's this thing in our culture now called a lifestyle brand. Who knows what a lifestyle brand is? Have you ever heard of the brand Patagonia? Has anybody ever heard of that brand or seen anybody wearing one of those hats or one of those puffy vests? They make a lot of hats and puffy vests. I think that's the only thing they make. Uh, but go to Colorado or Utah in one of those places, and you will see this brand all over the place, Patagonia. They sell lifestyle. They, they don't just sell stuff. They sell a lifestyle. And if you live in Iowa and you wear one of these hats or pu puffy vests, it's like saying, I know I'm in Iowa right now. I know that. But believe me, I've been to the mountains way more than you, right? <laughs> this is what it's like. And, and people think they need to wear this stuff to actually go and do the activity, right? Now, if you're wearing a Patagonia shirt, I, I bless you this morning. Like, but uh, it's like if you climbed a mountain, but you were not wearing a Patagonia puffy vest, it would not be as satisfying, right? <laughs> Can you imagine getting to the top of a mountain and say, gosh, this was great and all, but I really wish I was wearing one of those hats. That would make it so much better. This, but honestly, this is what we think, isn't it? Yesterday, my family uh, and I went to the Cedar Falls Farmer's Market, and I saw a little boy, maybe two years old, in a Patagonia romper, right? He was in a onesie, a Patagonia onesie, and I wanted to go, when would you climb your last mountain, bro? <laughs> and he would have said, yesterday, get out of here. It, it's true. This is, this is what we do. Uh, this is what happens, and, and we do the same thing, and here's, the, and here's the worst example of it, right? We do this with our phones, right? We believe that we need the newest phone so that we can be more productive, so that we can afford to buy the new phone that comes out in 10 months, right? And everyone knows the dopamine hit they get in their brain when they get a new phone. It's, it's amazing, right? You unbox the thing, and it's this, uh, this is, it's like, it's just dopamine straight to your, to your cerebral cortex. And you say, oh my gosh, this thing is amazing. It recognizes my face. I can send messages to my friends, and the message is a chicken, but it's my voice coming out of the chicken's mouth. This is unbelievable. This is what we want, right? And then, and this is not an exaggeration anymore. This is not. In two months, you're like, that piece of junk. I had to charge it today, right? I, had to, I actually had to charge my phone today. We get, we get frustrated with the thing, believing that it is, it is no longer going to meet our need. And as soon as the new thing comes, right, we discard it. We throw it away. And it's in these subtle ways that our culture is always communicating to us. You need to be running after these things. You need to be pursuing these things. You need to be, you need to be going after this stuff. You have to be putting forth effort and working and making money because all of that requires that you keep up, right? And this naturally 
naturally, running after these things in this way will naturally create a kind of anxiety in our hearts. It will create what Jesus is talking about in this passage, a kind of worry. And it will make, in that worry, and that pursuit, will make us ungenerous, won't it? An anxious heart is one that strives to attain, Jesus is saying. An anxious heart is one that strives to attain. And in our society, and I've said this multiple times in the last three or four months, anxiety is a problem, isn't it? It's a problem. Because we are striving to attain. We are running after these things. But yet Jesus says the antidote to an anxious heart and the striving after these things is what? Jesus says, Jesus says essentially, a generous heart is one that abides in God's love for us. A generous heart is one that abides in God's love. This is what Jesus says in John 15, verses 4 through 9. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and, uh, as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. My Father is glorified by this, that you may bear much fruit, and so, prove to, uh, and so prove to be my disciples. People for whom generosity comes easy are people who have learned to abide in Christ and have learned to see God as a loving Father just as Jesus saw Him in Matthew 6. They are not nervous about what's around the corner, they are not caught in a cycle of constantly trying to climb and attain more and more and more. They rest in the knowledge that God has them, that God has them. They trust God, not just for physical provision in their life, but they trust Christ with their very lives, with their emotions, with their finances, with their wants, and with their desires. They learn to abide, not strive, not run after, not pursue false pleasures. And when they do this, when they abide in Christ, trusting that God is a good Father who has their best interests in mind, you know what becomes very easy? Generosity. Generosity. Because we learn to be generous by learning to abide in God's love. That's how we learn to be generous. And this is exactly what Jesus means in verse 33. He says this, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Seek first God's kingdom. I remember I was uh, playing ultimate frisbee in college with some guys from my school, and uh, we were playing. There's a there was a university about the size of you and I. It's SMU, and we were playing on. They had a nice uh, astroturf field, and we jumped the fence, probably illegally, to play on this astroturf field. And uh, we were playing on one half of the field, and down the field were some uh, were some coeds from the college. And as what often happens in your uh, very early 20s when you're a group of guys from a Bible college and you see a bunch of girls from a secular college on the other side of the field, 
some guys got some ideas. They were going to go try and get dates. And, uh, and I remember putting my arm around one of the guys and saying, man, like, you don't need to do this. <laughs> like, like, let's just play ultimate frisbee and go back. Like, we don't need to do this. Part of that might have been is that I was afraid of girls until I was 30. <laughs> uh, but I remember putting my arm around him and just saying, um, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. And he looked at me like I was a crazy person. <laughs> like, what? There's 19-year-old there's girls over there and I'm going to go ask them out on a date. But, uh, but he looked at me like, what, what do you mean, seek first the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Like, I see something and I want it, right? Like, I, I feel that I need something and I want to go after it and I want to get it. And this idea of seeking first the kingdom of God makes no sense to me. How am I, how am I to go about seeking first the kingdom of God? You know, what, what, what am I supposed to do there? What, what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God? Do, so instead of going and asking pretty girls out on dates, do you just like go pray in your room? Is that what the option is? And then, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm using this analogy, but like a spouse is just going to automatically like knock on your door and say, hi, you were praying in your room and God is rewarding you. So here's a spouse, right? <laughs> is that what it is? That's not what it is actually, just for the record. So everybody can relax, right? That's not what it is. It isn't. This is, uh, again, Craig Keener says this about what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. He says, seeking God's kingdom means valuing what God values and obeying his commands. It's when his people care for others in need among them that God supplies the need of his people as a whole. Perhaps because then he can best trust them to use his gifts rightly. Seeking God's kingdom, seeking God's kingdom is about valuing what God values and obeying his commands. And what God values more than anything is people, is people and caring for their needs. This is why over and over and over when you read the New Testament, one of the things that the apostles are always talking about is caring for those among you, Right? Because a heart of generosity and love, a heart that is abiding in Christ, will always be a heart that isn't looking to strive after these things, but is rather looking to the needs of others in one's community as an expression of the love of God. This is what it means. And so one, one, who, is, one who is valuing and obeying the commandments of God, who is, who is loving the things that God loves, who is caring for others, can't help but be a generous person, and they can't help but neglect striving after things. Because you're too busy, right? Abiding in the love of God, seeking the kingdom of God, caring about what God cares about, and loving other people. You can't help but do that. Joss, if you could come up. The, the reality of the kingdom of God is that it is a wholly others-focused endeavor. It is an others-focused endeavor. We cannot focus on our own well-being. We cannot focus on our own work. We cannot focus on our own ability to get it done. We have to focus on the things that God cares about most. And the things that God cares about most are other people, are other people. And so the question is this morning, are you jammed up? 
Do you feel your heart growing anxious? Is the anxiety in your heart a byproduct of you striving to attain? Striving to attain, working hard to make things happen by sheer force of your human effort. And have you kind of singled God out of that equation? Have you you not depended on him enough? Have you not leaned on God enough? Have you not asked him maybe once or twice if the thing that you are striving after is worth all this effort, is worth all this work? And have you asked God what it is to be a kingdom person, to be a kingdom person, a person who seeks the kingdom of God, who who serves and loves Jesus, who obeys God's commandments, who values what he values and expresses love to other people through the generous life that he has given you. You see, God did not give you your life. He did not give you your resources. He did not give you your house. He did not give you your talents and abilities so that you can strive after things that you think will make you happy. He just didn't. He gave you those things so that you could give them to others. This is what it looks like. This is what the economy of the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like us breaking ourselves open and pouring ourselves out for other people in the same way that Jesus broke himself open and gave himself for us. This is what it looks like. And out of a heart like that flows wells of generosity. Flows, flows an abundance of generosity. So this morning, here's the question. What do you want? What are you striving after? What are you working to attain? And why are you working to attain it? And what of that effort, what of that work, what of that striving that you're doing today, this week, this month, this year, what have you, needs to be given over to God? Friends, I will just tell you this. Um, I have some striving that I need to lay down. I need to lay down. I do. I have some things that I've been doing under my own effort and my own steam, right, that need to be surrendered. There are some areas of my life where I have not been abiding and instead have been depending upon my own effort to sort out. And the invitation of Christ for us today is to give those things over to him and to learn what it means to abide in Christ and to seek first his kingdom rather than our own agenda. So if you close your eyes with me, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you, God, that you have offered this respite from our striving that you have told us that you don't want us to work to exhaustion, that you don't want us to be a people who are constantly running after things, but rather that you want us to be a people who in in a place of rest, from a place of rest, abide in you, 
and give our striving and our effort and our work over to you. Yes, we still work. Yes, we still put forth effort. Yes, some days are still hard and long. But we depend on you, God. You to do the work. You to do the real work. You to, you to do the real efforting, God. And we commit to seek first your kingdom. To seek first your kingdom. To value what you value. To, to obey your commands. And to love other people the way that you love them. Would you help us to seek first your kingdom, God? And I pray for those in this room right now who feel heavy laden, who feel burdened by whatever it is that they're doing, and they don't really feel like there's another option. Maybe work is difficult. Maybe, uh, maybe things have just gotten unmanageable. Maybe their life is just untenable, and just work and effort and, and grinding it out just feels like the only option. God, would you, would you reveal your love to them right now? And would they find a place of rest in you? Would they find a place of rest in you? And could, in the midst of the effort and in the midst of the difficult work environment and in the midst of all of the stuff that happens, could they find a place of security and rest in your loving arms? Would they know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, right now, would they know that God is a loving Father and that He has their best interests in mind? That God is a loving Father, and He has your best interests in mind. Would you confirm that in our hearts today? And would you help us leave this place knowing full well that the God we serve is a loving Father? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen, and amen, and amen. All right. All right, all right. So, I uh, say to you, go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you next week. Amen.